all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angel fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the ancestor of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Then they, uh, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. Uh, he is filled with fury uh, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the, the river that the dragon was spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. The dragon stood on the shores of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, and with ten horns on its, uh, uh, ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast saw, uh, the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and, and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and exercise its authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to, uh, to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose name have been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. Uh, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people, which you all will need today, by the way. Uh, verse 11, then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. 
whose fatal wound had been healed, and it performed great signs and even caused fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their hands and on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of that of its name. This calls for wisdom, and it does. Uh, Let the people who have insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number is six, six, six. And we're done. All right, you may be seated, and I may drink some water. All right, now we're getting into the real stuff, aren't we? The stuff that Kirk Cameron makes movies about. Uh, Nick Cage even did a Left Behind movie, I think. So if that lends any credence to what we're about to read, Nicolas Cage did a movie about this. Uh, If you have spent any time with Christians who talk about or speculate about the end times, a lot of these passages will be familiar to you. Uh, If not, and you haven't spent time with those types of Christians, well, I would encourage you to just kind of buckle up because uh, we're going to kind of try and explain what's happening in these passages today and try and hear what God has to say to us through them. Uh, but here's the thing. God has not given us the spirit of fear, correct? But of power and love and of a sound mind. And we're going to need that sound mind in order to read these chapters of Revelation well. It takes real discipline, and I mean that, and strong and a strong interpretive mind to remember these keys as we read these books. And so I want to go back and talk just by way of, uh, of reminder to talk about the three keys we talked about at the first couple of weeks that we have to keep in front of us if we're going to read this book well. So we have those up on the screen, I believe. Here they are. And if you were with us, if you've been with us, you might remember these. So these are the three keys to read this book well. You've got to remember that revelation in Greek means apocalypse which does not mean the end of the world. It means to uncover, unveil, or reveal something. So we're not reading necessarily a story about the end of the world so much as we're, we're reading a story that's unveiling something. Second, this book, Revelation, was written uh, to persecuted Christians at the turn of the first century struggling to live faithfully in the Roman world. This is who it was written to. And so the, any interpretation that we draw from this book must first and foremost have made sense to them, all right? And number three, Revelation must be read in the light of this slain lamb who wins the victory, not through armed conflict, but by laying down his life and through the word of his mouth, all right? So these are the three things we have to keep in mind, and we'll uh, revisit some of these themes as we go. Um, But we have to keep this lamb at the center of the book. Remember, we have to remember it's all about the lamb. But that is difficult in this section, isn't it? It's difficult when we read this book, that when we read about these, this great red dragon and these two beasts, and we hear stuff about the mark of the beast and this number 666, and all of this imagery, right, that for many people in Christian culture over the last number of years has come to signify uh, this thing called end times thinking, all right? So, for... Uh, 
for many Christians, for a, a number of years, actually, there's been a kind of fervor about what we call the end times. Now, uh, if you've noticed up until this point in this series, I have not been teaching any specific uh, timeline of events surrounding the second coming of Jesus. I've not been trying to tie the stuff we've been reading to um, to ideas like the Antichrist, maybe, if, if you've been wondering why that hasn't been happening. Now, the reason I have not been doing that is that I've been trying to stay really faithful to the book itself, to the actual words on the page. And a lot of the words that we associate with the end times, words like Antichrist, even words like the rapture, don't appear in Revelation. Those words actually don't show up in this book. When I was growing up, we talked a lot about the end times, right? Which we described as a period of time uh, near the end, right? Near the return of Christ, near the end of time, technically. And I was told that the book of Revelation is almost entirely about that stuff. So, I, I was under the, under the impression that the book of Revelation was almost entirely about the future out in front of us, and that it was written to help us figure out or put a very complicated geopolitical map together about what the end of the world was going to look like. That's what I was told. Uh, there was a lot of speculation about the threat of a one-world government and computer chips that would be in our hands or in our foreheads, and there was a lot of speculation about who the Antichrist might be. There was, like I said, a kind of end times fervor, and people spent a lot of time trying to decode Revelation. And I will tell you this, I was into it. I really was. I, I loved all of the opinions, and I loved the debate, and I loved the speculation. But to be 100% honest with you, I was also quite scared. It made me scared. And that fear did not make me a more faithful follower of Jesus. Uh, it, it actually made me kind of draw away from people. It didn't actually make me move towards people with the grace and love of Jesus. It made me fearful. It made me closed off. And, uh, and then when I went to college and I began to study this book more and more, I became convinced of something. And what I became convinced of is that this book is not actually all about the end. It's not. We, we definitely get a glimpse of the end multiple times, and the return of Christ in the book of Revelation is, um, it, it is the apex of the story, right? Uh, it, it, is the, it is the climax of the story. Reading Revelation can and should put a cry in our hearts, a kind of deep longing for the return of Jesus, when Jesus will come back and make all things new and wipe away every tear from every eye. And we are all together, I hope, this morning in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're saying, yes, come Lord Jesus, right? We say that. But this book is not all about the future. And here is why uh, it should not be read as pertaining to only the future. I have a reason for you this morning. If it was all about the future, if it was all about the future out ahead of us, it would have been of no value to the people to whom it was originally written. All right? And it would only be of value to a small percentage, a small sliver of Christians who lived at the end of time, which would mean that it really served no purpose before then for anybody, right? 
And now, now here's, a, here's a, just a universal truth. Scripture is for the capital C church, for all the church throughout all of time, so that each successive generation of Christians can live faithfully as Christ's witnesses in our particular sliver of time that we have in this life. Living as kingdom citizens, this is important to remember, we live as kingdom citizens in the midst of the world. That's what we're called to do. And what I have been attempting to show you in this series is that this book has and will continue to be an encouragement to Christians living in the world that God has a plan. God has a plan. And God's plan has a name. And that name is Jesus. If all of the timelines and the theories and the speculations about Antichrist or pre-tribulation or post-tribulation cause us to get our eyes off Jesus, we have missed the point entirely. We've missed it. Amen? All right. Just making sure you're all tracking. Now, if what I've just said made no sense to you, again, it's okay. Uh, that, that's fine. Uh, you've never watched any Left Behind related media. Uh, you don't come into this conversation with any background, and that's okay. Uh, you just kind of have to shelve that thing I just said and kind of roll with us a little bit this morning, all right? So if you have your Bibles, will you open them up to the passage that we just read in chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation? And as always, it would be helpful for you to keep them open. And, and what we're going to get into in these chapters is John describing for the church a picture of a battle between two opposing forces, all right? This is what John's describing. The forces of the lamb and the forces of this big red dragon. It's really the kind of stuff that comes out of a fantasy book. If you're a fan of Lord of the Rings, like you feel right at home in this section of Revelation. The battle depicted in Revelation is representative of a battle that... that or a struggle between Jesus and Satan, or Jesus and the accuser. But the, the, John telling us this, the story of this battle in the, with this fantastic language is actually not the first time we've heard about this in the story of the Bible. Remember, we read the Bible as one big story. And though it's diverse in structure and form, it forms one coherent narrative. It's, we believe it's one story. And here at the end of the Bible, we get a, a more clear glimpse of something that we heard an echo of earlier in the book, specifically in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, in the book of Genesis. Actually, Genesis and Revelation have all of these interesting threads that tie them together in interesting and beautiful ways. But in Genesis 3, there is, we hear of a prophecy that we could be tempted to just jump over because it's so vague. So, in Genesis 3, right after the serpent has deceived Adam and Eve and led them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God responds to the serpent's deception with a curse that contains a kind of prophecy. And here's what God says to the serpent in chapter 3, verse 13. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, you, uh, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. All right? At the time of this prophecy, if you're reading through Genesis, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you, right? There's not a whole lot of context. But as the story of the Bible goes, and as we read Revelation, we learn the meaning of that prophecy, and, uh, and we learn that there is a kind of battle going on. 
and that Christ has won that battle over Satan in his death and resurrection, right? That's what we learn. Jesus was killed on the cross. His heel was struck, right? On the cross, he was killed. But in his resurrection, he conquered the powers of sin and death. Have any of you seen The Passion of the Christ? You can raise your hand. Most humans have. Uh, our, our, our good friend Mel Gibson takes a couple liberties in that, in that movie, but he represents the, this connection between the Genesis prophecy and the resurrection of Jesus really well. If you remember, I think as Jesus is walking out of the tomb at the end of the story, it shows Jesus stepping on the head of a snake, right? It's just a little, it's just a little scene in the movie. Uh, that's not in the Bible. That's, that's not a story we see in the Bible. It's just an artistic liberty uh, that Mr. Gibson takes to make a point, to connect Genesis 3 to the, to the resurrection, to try to connect those things. And I think he's right to connect those two events in the Scriptures. And what I think John is doing in chapter 12 is something kind of similar. He is retelling the story of the great battle up until this point, okay? So that's what I think he's doing. Only the serpent that we discover in Genesis is now personified as a big red dragon. And, and it seems like evil has reached its apex. It's reached its highest point. And notice that the picture of the woman in Revelation also ties into the prophecy in Genesis as well. All right? This woman represents, and you can write this down if you want to, the woman in Revelation represents all of God's people throughout history. First Israel and then the church. That's what she represents. And, and we know this because what does she do? She gives birth to a child, and, she give, and we know this, that this child is Jesus, right? Uh, Bruce Metzger, who's a New Testament scholar, uh, makes it clear for us. He says this, what does it, chapter 12, all signify? John himself tells us in verse 9 that the dragon represents Satan, the devil. Furthermore, the child is obviously the Christ, for again, John provides the key for identifying him as the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And these words were taken directly from Psalm 2.9, uh, and they were understood by Jews as a prediction of the role of the coming Messiah. So John quotes a messianic psalm uh, in description of the child to tell us uh, that this child is uh, a representation of Jesus, all right? And so, into this recap of this battle, John throws all kinds of other interesting imagery. He talks about uh, that Satan tried to kill the child, and we hear resonance of King Herod trying to kill Jesus um, because he heard that he was prophesied to be the king of the Jews. We see some, we see some pictures of possibly even the flight to, to Egypt by Jesus' parents. There's all these other things. But then, in verses 7 and 9, we get a heavenly picture of the defeat of Satan, all right? So, so what we have is this picture of the battle, and then, uh, and Jesus is born, and we see that Jesus is going to win the battle, and then in 7 and 9, we get a heavenly picture, a depiction of this battle with Michael, this archangel, and Satan fighting. Uh, now, this is all kind of playing off the story that we read of in Scripture of Satan being an angel of light and, and uh, being cast down to the earth. But I think all of this, that language that can be kind of hard to understand, is actually talking about the fact that Satan was defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus because of the song that follows that passage in verses 10 through 12. Okay? So here's why I think that's what that is. Uh, and I'm just going to read verses 10 and, 10 and 11 for you. 
So it says this, now, now, has, now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the, the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down, right? So the time of the Messiah has come. The Messiah has defeated the accuser. And then verse 11, they uh, have triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, this is a really important and pivotal part in this, these couple of chapters. This song is a beautiful picture of the victory that was, has been won through Christ. But after the song of victory, what happens? What happens after the song of victory in chapter 12? In order to understand what is happening there, you kind of have to put your, shoes in, your feet in the shoes of a first century Christian. Because after the victory, after, after Jesus wins victory over Satan, Satan is cast down to earth, and what does Satan do? He continues to go after the woman, right? He continues to persecute the people of God, if you will. And again, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the first Christians who heard this. Because many of the people who heard this, Jewish Christians who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and some uh, Gentile Christians who believed the good news that Jesus was king. And they have in their mind when they're reading this a kind of glaring question, I think. And that question they have is, if Jesus is king, why does it look like we're losing? All right? What, why would God allow such horrible things to happen? Why are we being marginalized and oppressed and put down? Why is this so difficult still if Jesus is king? And John, I think, retells the story of the battle and the victory that was won through Christ in order to encourage these Christians. And he gives them the reason why they are experiencing the difficulty that they now face, the persecution that they now face. And he says it's because Satan is mad. And he, he can't defeat Jesus, so what's he going to do? He's going to go after Jesus' bride. And John is letting them know this. And what, exactly what he's letting them know is that you may not escape this persecution. You may not get away with it, but you might not get away from it. But what will happen is that you will overcome it, right? By the way, but the way that you will live your, the way that you will overcome this persecution the way that you will triumph in the midst of it is found in verse 11. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's what I think John's doing here. So to sum all of chapter 12 up, I think we have it on the screen. In chapter 12, John is encouraging the church to faithfully resist the attacks of the enemy through the word of their testimony and through sacrificial living. This is what I think John is, is doing. And here's the thing. This is how Christians resist. This is how we resist. This is how we fight. As Christians, we don't win by fighting the way the world fights. We don't win by bashing people over the head or by picking fights or by name-calling or by demonizing or by splitting the world up into groups of people who are against us or for us. 
We win by faithfully following Jesus, living like Jesus, witnessing to the reality of the resurrected Lord through the way we live sacrificially for other people, by laying down our lives for other people. You know, in our day, in this country, that might most certainly won't look like martyrdom, to be honest with you. It may look like sacrificially giving of our time and our treasure to advance the kingdom. It it may look like caring for the poor or for, a, or for the widow. It may look like finding ways to help the elderly and the vulnerable that are shut in and lonely during COVID right now. It may look like peacefully resisting the gods of our day, just like the first Christians had to resist the gods of theirs. But the gods of our day look a little different, don't they? The gods of our day look like money. They look like power. They look like entertainment. They look like the God of individually, individuality. Sorry. They look like the God of consumerism. They look like the God of Facebook. I would encourage you to resist that particular God over the next four months. Uh, nobody thought that was funny. Uh, the God of human objectification. But the promise is that if we live like Jesus, if we live with lamb power, we align ourselves with the one who says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Right? Amen? Amen. So let's do that. All right? Let's live like Jesus. So that's what chapter 12 is about. But chapter 13 then makes another transition. And I, and I just want to uh, show this to you real quick, uh, uh, just so that we see what is happening in chapter 12 and chapter 13 together. So in chapter 12, John is telling the church about how they are to resist the dragon, right? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's how they are to resist. They are to live like Jesus in the world through living sacrificially. And in chapter 13, John tells the church what they are to resist. He gets more specific about what they are to resist. And in chapter 13, we see that the dragon has some friends who also want to oppress God's people. You see, the dragon isn't just trying to attack God's people head on, right? He's not only persecuting the church. He's too smart for that. He's too smart to use just one approach. He also wants to set up a kind of counterfeit kingdom to try and draw away or to entice God's people away from the Lamb. To tempt them to put their faith or their allegiance in what is, what is described in Revelation 13 as kind of like an unholy trinity of the dragon and these two beasts, which are pictured in chapter 13. So in chapter 13, and I'm just going to lay this out for you and say it plain because I think it helps. In chapter 13, the two beasts together represent a, a collaboration of political power and civil religion that falsely claim to represent the true God and God's will. All right? So for the first, Christ, so for the first Christians who read this book, who was that? Who would they have seen as they would have believed it was Rome, right? Rome falsely set itself up to represent God and God's will. The empire, uh, sorry, not the empire, but the emperor was on their money, right? On their coins. And the emperor was often referred to on their coins as the son of God. News about the empire was called euangelion, gospel, good news. 
And after Julius Caesar, many of the emperors were often referred to as God and Savior, right? This was a common moniker for the emperors of Rome. So if you were living at the turn of the first century reading this book, you would have been pretty sure that the beasts were Roman political power and Roman civil religion, right? You would have been pretty sure of that. And you would have been right. You would have been correct. That is what John is talking about. John is warning his audience to come out from among them. Don't worship the false gods of Rome. Resist them. And he has to tell them that because of how attractive it must have been to participate in the Roman system of power. Rome protected them. The Roman economy was how they made money. And in the day-to-day operation of life in the Roman world, the bank and the grocery store were both associated with, the te- with temples to false gods. So if you wanted to bank, you went to a temple to a false god. If you wanted to go to a grocery store or, or get food, in essence, you went to a temple. Remember, so do you, any of you remember this debate in 1 Corinthians where, where the Corinthians write to Paul and they ask him if it's okay for them to eat food sacrificed to idols? Do you remember this? This is, the, this is the debate that's going on here. And what they're asking is, where is the line, kind of? Where, how far can we go with eating food sacrificed to idols before it becomes idolatry? They're asking the question of, how far can we go in participating in Roman society? Because they, they were trying to figure out what the line is. And John, in Revelation, says to these Christians, don't be seduced by this beast, Right? Because what you are really doing when you put your hope in a kind of counterfeit kingdom, when you, put your, uh, when you pledge your allegiance to Caesar, when you participate in the idolatry of Rome, and when you participate in the kingdom that is set up by Rome, what you are really doing, and John says this point blank in chapter 13, what you are really doing is you are worshiping Satan. Right? So he says, resist Resist with your life if you have to, right? This is what John says. And as you resist, do it through sacrificial living and through sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And just know, just know that even if it doesn't look like in the short run, like you're being successful, in the long run, you will be victorious. So resist Rome and win through land power. This is what John is saying to the church through chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation. So I'm pretty confident that that's what John was saying to them. But what does this mean for us, right? And this is where things get tricky, (laughs) correct? Because there is a lot of speculation about things like the mark of the beast and the Antichrist and all of that in our world, especially amongst Christians. And I'm, and I'm just going to be totally honest with you on the front end of this message today. I don't think Revelation tells us or is even trying to tell us the identity of one great Antichrist at the end of history. I don't believe that's what John is doing in this book. I think Revelation is telling us that throughout history, there have been and will be numerous antichrists. Those people, but also political powers that set up a kind of counterfeit kingdom and ask us to put our faith and trust in them. 
Remember, the book of Revelation does not use the word antichrist. Remember that. It's important to remember. But one of the books that does use that language, or a couple of the books that does use that language the most, are 1st and 2nd John. 1st and 2nd John. And in 1st John 2, verse 18, it says this, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is, and as you have heard the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. 1 John 2.18. See, what he says here is this is the last hour and many Antichrists have already come. John's concern in 1 John is for all Christians living between the time of Jesus' ascension and the second coming. And he's concerned that they not put their hope or their trust in any person or in any earthly kingdom, but only in Jesus. And any kingdom or government or person that sets itself up as what we would call a totalizing system, a system that's supposed to engulf your whole world, and opposes the truth that Jesus is Lord, is, in John's language, antichrist, and it needs to be resisted. Now, there's some confusion about this word end times, especially when we read it in the New Testament. Because John says here, in the last hour, in those last days, in the end times. And what you have to understand is that when New Testament writers use that language about the end times or the last days, they are talking about the time after the ascension of Jesus uh, and before his resurrection. So they're talking about the time of the church. They're talking about the time in which we all live. And so technically, from the perspective of, mo- of all of the New Testament writers, the end times is all of the time between when Jesus ascends to the Father and when he comes again. And so it's important to remember that when you're reading the New Testament. And John says, in that time, there will be many counterfeit Christs. There will be many people, many powers, many systems that will, will ask for your allegiance. Don't give it to them. Some of them will be brutal, and some of them will be obvious, and others of them will be subtle, and will have to pay attention. But do not give your allegiance to these powers. Resist them with everything you have, but resist them with lamb power by loving and serving sacrificially. Don't get drawn into the false worship of money or beauty or political power and might, but live as citizens of heaven, even as you are currently citizens of the world. Remember what Peter tells us. Peter tells the church to live as foreigners and strangers, exiles in a country not our own, right? This is what Peter says. Now, that's what I think the point is for us, but we have some further questions to answer here, don't we? Like, what is the mark of the beast? And what's up with this number, 666? I'm going to answer these head-on for us today because I think it's, it's really actually helpful. Now, uh, I think the number 666 is the easiest one to answer for us this morning. I think 666 represents the counterfeit kingdom of man. All right? I think 666 represents the counterfeit kingdom of man. Uh, The number 777 is God's number represented in the Bible, and 666 is obviously one less than seven across the board and represents uh, man's desire to build a kingdom for himself. You know, since the Tower of Babel, humanity has been trying to build for itself a kingdom apart from God, hasn't it? 
And, uh, and we just don't realize that when we are doing that, what we're actually doing is playing right into the, the enemy's game. We're playing right into the devil's game. It is the story from Genesis in the, in the garden all over again. We want knowledge and power and autonomy for ourselves. And we think freedom, and, and we think freedom and autonomy from God is what we want. And so we build kingdoms and structures and powers for ourselves, but it's actually a kind of bondage for us. It, it actually becomes a kind of bondage for us. And John is telling the church, don't give in to the kingdoms of this world. Don't put your hope or your allegiance there, but rather put your hope and allegiance in Jesus. It, which leads us to the second point, the second uh, image that we see here that a lot of people have questions about. The mark of the beast. The mark of the beast. Uh, now, in order to understand what John is talking about in the Mark of the Beast section of chapter 13, we have to read Deuteronomy chapter 6, all right? And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see an instruction that is given to the people of Israel to take the Word of God and to bind it on their hands and on their foreheads, all right? And so you, you will see uh, practicing Jews today do that during times of prayer. They have little wooden boxes that they put the scriptures in and they bind them on their hands and on their foreheads because God commanded them to do it. Now, uh, this binding of the, the word of God on their, on their foreheads and on their hands is a symbol, okay? It, and this symbol represents allegiance and obedience, all right? So the, the picture of having the scriptures tied, literally tied to your head reminds you that your mind, you need to be, you have, you have to pledge allegiance to God alone, right? It's, it's about allegiance. It's about who controls your mind, right? And the scriptures on the hand is meant to remind them that they must live in obedience, right? The things they do must align with God's kingdom as well. This is why they, this is why God told them to bind them on their heads and on their hands, Okay? So that we have to understand that image before we understand what's happening in Revelation. And then, in the New Testament, in, in 1 Corinthians one twenty two and in Ephesians 1.13-14, Paul tells us that Christians have been sealed or marked with what? The Holy Spirit. The presence of God. Right? And so, when we, when we, uh, when we put those images together... What we see is uh, the, the picture of what the mark of the beast represents comes to be more clear. And I'm just going to make my point simply this morning because I don't want to mince words. I don't believe we need to live in fear of some new technology or financial disruption or government regulation that if we participate in it will have specific ramifications for our eternal soul. I don't believe that. It is fine to debate whether certain things or certain technology or certain governmental processes are good for our society and our world, and we can have conversations about that. But the mark of the beast is not a microchip, all right? It's not. The mark of the beast is our allegiance, right? It's, our, it's, who, it's, it's representative of who we're allegiant to in our, in our thinking and who we obey in our actions. Does this make sense? Who we're allegiant to and who we obey. So to, to take the mark of the beast is to be both allegiant and obedient to the systems of the world rather than to Christ. All right? But Jesus has called us out of the world, 
The, the, literally, the Greek word for the church is ekklesia, the called out ones. And what I believe we must be vigilant about is not, is there some new technology that represents the Antichrist that if I accidentally, that if it's accidentally in my iPhone, I'm toast, right? I don't think that's what it is. The thing I think we need to be vigilant about is that we not place our hope or our allegiance or our, or our obedience in systems of power or government structures or leaders in our world uh, that make us put our hope more in them than in Jesus. And with the election right, out, right around the corner, I must say that uh, this should be a very pertinent reminder to us that our hope does not lie with any earthly political figure. It rests in Jesus. It rests in Jesus. You can come up. Our hope, our allegiance, our, our obedience rests in Jesus and in no other power other than him. So the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, and I believe this wholeheartedly, no one's going to hoodwink you. I don't think there's a catch-22 in the scriptures. The, the, pro, the, the, the words of scripture are straightforward. Christ wants your allegiance and your obedience over and above every other power and every other system in, in this world. And we, from time to time, I don't know about you, but I can, I can say it's true of me, I am tempted to put my faith and my hope in other things. And do you want to know what my, uh, a, uh, a litmus test that I use for myself is? Specifically around political issues in our world? Here's, here's, here's the litmus test I use. You can see if you want to use it for yourself. Uh, the test I use is that if I have more in common with a non-Christian who holds my same political opinion than I do with a Christian that votes different from me, it is quite possible I have put too much hope in politics and not enough hope in Jesus. That's my litmus test. I don't know what yours is. So as we conclude today, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Jesus wants all of us. He wants our allegiance and our obedience. He does not want us to be fearful of some, of some uh, technical thing in the future. And I don't know what's going to happen in the future. It's very possible that there are, uh, that there will be, uh, that before the coming of Christ, there will be difficulty in our world. There will be systems of political power that set themselves up against good in our world. And those things exist today, right? But no matter where we find ourselves and no matter what system of power or authority, no matter what the systems of the world look like that we operate in, we are always called to put our faith and our allegiance and our trust and our obedience in Christ no matter what. And this is what we're called to all the time. We are called to be Christians. People who don't align ourselves with the powers of this world, but align ourselves with the power of God and the person of Jesus and live like him in the world. All right? So as we conclude today, I'd like you to stand with me. And we're just going to pray and we're going to pledge our allegiance to Jesus. How's that sound? Does that sound good? We're just going to pledge our allegiance to Jesus. Father, we pledge our allegiance to you. We ask, God, that you would uncouple our hearts from anything in this world that we've given too much attention to. God, we, we pray that uh, you would uncouple our hearts from anything we've put too much hope in other than you. 
And we pray that today we would be people who would find, uh, who would be marked by your spirit and that we would go into the world living sacrificially, carrying this message of the goodness and grace of God. Would we know that neither height nor depth can keep us from your love, that there is nothing that can separate us from you. All you ask is that we live as kingdom citizens in the midst of a broken world. And that we live as people of hope and self-sacrificial love in the midst of a world that wants to dominate and control. So Jesus, we pledge allegiance to you this morning. We find our life in you. Would you help us all to live in you this week as we go from this place? And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Well, thanks for being at church today. It was good to see you. Uh, and I hope that was an, as an encouragement to you today. So as you go, uh, if you brought a gift, you can put it in the little black box on your way out. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you next week. Thanks.